Welcome to the audio version of Coding in the Classroom, our column in the OME Gazette. Beza and I are seeking out teachers across the province of Ontario to talk to them and learn how they are using computational thinking for learning in their classrooms. We're really lucky to have Nicole Myers back. We're going to quiz her now on how she managed to incorporate coding and STEAM into her classroom. So she teaches grade six in Simcoe County District School Board. We're happy to have you back, Nicole. I'm super happy to be back. Thanks so much for having me again. Yeah. So if you have not heard the first interview, you need to go back and listen to the first interview we had with Nicole, which will be on the OME Talks website. And it will also be featured in the OME Gazette for, I'm thinking in the spring. I'm just going to say spring. Okay. We wanted to get down and into the weeds with you, Nicole, to see how is it that you're actually doing this in the classroom, what struggles you've had, what successes you've had, and what kind of wisdom you can put out there for the people who might be just a little bit apprehensive to start coding. So how did you incorporate coding into your classroom? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest things to consider, especially for elementary teachers, is how do you integrate coding beyond just math and now the science curriculum as well? Myself, my background is actually in English. So I graduated from university with an English degree. And so coding was absolutely not something that came naturally to me. It was not something I had previous experience with. And that's actually true for the vast majority of elementary teachers as well. And so I really think, um, considering how can we leverage our own strengths that come from often an English or arts background and then connect that with coding often not only leads for greater success in the classroom, but also I think helps teachers feel a lot more confident as well. So to me, I really try and integrate coding beyond just math by doing it a little bit more in a cross-curricular way. And typically I try to integrate it with language and with art as well. So one of my favorite things to do when it comes to coding is actually having students create their own video games. So a lot of times you can do that in websites like Scratch. My personal preference is to use Make Code Arcade because I find it's actually just a little bit simpler and a bit faster to do it that way because it's specifically designed for the purpose of making video games. But because video games naturally have a storytelling component to them and a kind of like characterization component, there's a really great opportunity to make some really strong language connections there as well. So what I'm actually doing with my students right now, when we're recording this, we're actually leading up to the winter break. And so this past week and then this final week that's coming up, which is the last week before the break, is when I've been having my students work on a video game design project. And we've really been focusing on a project that integrates both language, art, and math. And so really for us, it's been, number one, connecting to that idea of media literacy, where we talk quite extensively about what do video games and in the media, and specifically looking at diversity and representation in the media, and specifically in video games. So for example, we learned that Whereas video game players are actually about pretty much evenly split. It's about 50% men, 50% women, give or take a little bit. When it comes to the lead character in video games, 90% of video games have a male lead character and only 10% of video games have a female lead character. And so it's like, why is that? And so we think about, okay, who makes video games? Who buys video games? Who plays video games? Why is this kind of disproportionate thing happening? And we also look at things like racial representation and all different kinds of representation in video games, really with the goal of having students think about how can we do something about this by creating our own video games that are going to address this issue of diversity and representation. And so we have students 
actually write their own kind of character description. We have them write like a game description. So thinking about if you ever buy a physical copy of a game, or even if you buy a digital copy, there's always some kind of paragraph telling you about the game and really trying to sell you the game. So we have all those really awesome literacy and media literacy components there. We also do something where students actually create concept art for their characters in Scratch and in MakeCode Arcade. Obviously, your art skills are a little bit more limited based on the technology that's available. But we always talk about as well, that was very much the case and actually still continues to be the case mm -hmm. in video games, both past and present, where often the kind of image video game designers have in their head of who the characters are and what they would look like can't really fully be represented by the technology of the time. And so that's really where the idea yes. of concept art comes especially, in. Especially, yeah. Especially when you're working in make code arcade, yeah. which it's like the old eight bit, which yes. is like, it's nice to have those constraints as well. Yeah. So no, you can't make a perfectly represented human being or cat or dog yeah. or whatever. Now, can you walk us through what is a first coding lesson? What does it look like when you're introducing this to your grade sixes? Yeah. So for me, I actually tend to dive right in a little bit, to be perfectly honest. So generally, we'll do a little bit of an introduction in terms of what is coding, because even though the Ontario math curriculum is now a couple of years old, and most students will have had some prior experience with coding, their prior teacher's comfort level with that, how much of that has actually stuck around, especially since a lot of that was launched during the pandemic. I think it's always worthwhile to level with students and really talk about what exactly is coding? The way I always like to describe it to students is basically the idea that coding is the language that computers speak. And so if we want to essentially communicate with computers and have them do the amazing things that we know they're capable of doing, we have to communicate to them in the language of code. And just like human languages, coding languages have their own rules that you need to follow in order for the language to make sense. And so that's really the first initial lesson we talk about. Throughout the project, I also kind of sprinkle in a lot of the key concepts. So for example, in the very first lesson, we talk about the idea of sequence and also the idea of variables, because those come up very quickly once students actually start writing their code. But then as the lessons kind of progress, that's when we start to introduce things like conditionals, like loops, like nested events, that kind of as they become relevant, that's when they get introduced. And so usually I'll spend like just a couple of minutes really talking about what is this concept? What does it look like in code? What is it used for? What impact does it have? And then it's a little bit more learning by doing. And so I generally take right. the approach when I do this project with my students of we are all working on a game, but what our games are going to look like are different. And so I'll more tend to teach in a way that kind of focuses a bit more on features they can include in their game. So here's how you would add, you know, this kind of feature in your game. Here's how you would add this kind of feature. Okay. And through that, really talking about where do we see conditionals present here? Where are these other concepts present? Yeah. So they can start to see them in a little bit more of a real yeah. world context. So, but once I've kind of set a base level, yeah. it's really a little bit more personalized to the students. Whereas they go, I'm trying to do this in my game. How do I actually do that? That's when it's more kind of sitting down with them and being like, okay, explain to me how you think you'd go about doing it. Let's try and figure it out together. Sometimes they ask me things and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know okay. how to do that. Yeah. So that, that brings up a really good point about the curriculum as written. Sequential events are grade one. Concurrent events are grade two. Loops are grade three. That's, it's not a, I don't think it's a bad thing that's, that it's in the, the curriculum that way. But if you're going to be doing any serious coding, you're going to run into, as you said, you're going to run into conditionals and variables really quickly. So yeah, so so even with the younger kids, they're going to encounter things that are not in their grade per se. So how, do they encounter that when you've worked with them, Nicole? 
Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the biggest questions that I get from teachers when I used to like work with them more directly was, you know, okay, this concept isn't until grade five, but I teach grade two, what do I do? And my approach has always been, it's really up to you. Like, I really don't agree with the idea, which I don't think is really what is intended there of the idea of you can't learn that until grade five. So don't do that sort of situation. Obviously, sometimes students want to create something where in order to create it, they would need to use those skills. And so I always take the advice of how much depth you want to go into with your students is up to you, but you can oftentimes demonstrate to students a skill without explicitly naming it and describing it, and they will be able to use it successfully. So I often think of the idea that like we can all in in our own language, in English in this case, speak in a more complex way without necessarily knowing the name of like the exact grammatical structure that we used in that sentence. And I always use that kind of metaphor with teachers as well, where it's like, students can use loops successfully without actually knowing that they're called loops or exactly what a loop is. Students can use very sophisticated coding concepts quite successfully without actually knowing that they have a name or that they're like a special skill. So oftentimes just showing students like this is how you would do it. They don't actually necessarily need to know that, oh, like this is a conditional. You can teach them that if you want to, because I personally believe that everything in the grade one through eight curriculum Actually, I have successfully taught to four-year-olds. Like they are actually very understandable concepts and they can get it. It's just a matter of you're not necessarily going to focus on it if you don't want to. And you're maybe not necessarily going to name it. So can can we simply say that uh, when teaching coding or when learning coding, the important is student pace rather than teaching pay, teacher pace or curriculum pace. But what about the other discipline? Because we are not just teaching coding alone. And it should be overlapped with the other disciplines, math, science, and others. So when it overlaps, how we can follow this pace? Because students could be really have fashion skills in coding, but not maybe in math, in size. So how we are dealing with this as a teacher? Yeah, I think it depends on the theme of your projects as well. That's why I tend to recommend projects that tend to go a little bit more in that kind of language and art direction, because those tend to really be, I find, a little bit more malleable to individual students' skills and their kind of progress. Where if you're just doing something like a really great beginner level project for Scratch is like an animated story, if a student is just a more beginner level in terms of their language skills, maybe their story is going to be more simple and that's okay. They can still demonstrate the coding concepts through that project, even if maybe the story can component there is not as sophisticated as perhaps a different student. So that's why I often recommend those more like language and art based projects, whatever that might look like, just because it does provide a little bit more of that kind of like low floor, high ceiling situation for students where they can engage with it in a way that makes sense. And I think that's also where, again, more open ended projects come in really handy. Example, doing a video game design project where if a student is like less confident in their own skills or maybe doesn't move at such a fast pace, maybe their game is going to end up being simpler or have fewer features than another student who's grasping it really quickly, really wants to push themselves and wants to take it to that next level. Because again, like as long as you can demonstrate that you understand the concept, that's really the only thing from my perspective that matters. The level of sophistication, obviously, we want to see grow over time. But as long as in grade three, students have successfully demonstrated they're able to use loops, then they've done it. And so you yeah. don't need to fuss about that so, as much. So as that, that brings up a really good point. In the development of the curriculum, the, the designers of the curriculum wanted the grade level expectations to be viewed as minimums rather yeah. than 
set goals that you have to reach. Yes, they are goals. You have to reach them, but don't view them as the end. You view them as here's the minimum that you need to do. Please go farther. And so that, that works not only just with the coding, but with all the expectations throughout the math curriculum. Yeah, I'm hoping I, they did the same thing with the science curriculum, but I don't yes, know. Yes, I think I would say they did. But yeah, I think that's a really great way of putting it as well is this is something that at that grade level, students absolutely need to know, but they are more than welcome to move on to other concepts, especially because like I kind of said before, the concepts themselves that students are being asked to learn are not difficult. Like, like I said, I have successfully taught four-year-olds what loops are, what conditionals are. And they're like, yeah, a loop is like a repeating section. You're like, you got it. But it's more how they will use those concepts over time is going yes. to increase in the level of sophistication. And that's really what we want to push students towards is less a focus on these individual skills. Because to be perfectly blunt, most of the skills there are actually a quite basic level. It's rather about how are you using them? How are you combining them together? And that's what some kind of situations right. are you able to use them successfully? I think that's the more relevant piece there. Okay. And that's something that kind of grows over time. Yeah. So it occurs to me that there's a little bit of difficulty with people understanding what mathematical modeling is. Is, but it occurs to me that games actually would be based on a mathematical model. If yeah. you want your if you want your character to jump, they have to like it doesn't make sense if they just keep going up or if they just yes. keep going yes. down. Right? <laughs> That's so, one of the hardest ones. <laughs> yeah. So gravity, you have to model gravity. Is that a nice way into understanding how to do mathematical modeling, do you think? Yeah, I definitely think so, especially as with things really with anything in code it's all about math mathematical models in the sense that you're trying to take some kind of thing that you want to happen some kind of action or outcome and you really have to think about how do I break that down into steps that a computer is going to understand because it's not like in the real world where I can just tell my brain that I want to jump and then I do it rather when I'm writing code I have to it doesn't know what jump is. And we really then have to break down a jump is into, okay, you go up in the air and then you come back down. Okay, how am I going to do that? I need to write that command and you need to actually start to think about what is behind these instructions that I'm giving. So I absolutely think there's a lot of overlap there and it's a really meaningful way for students to explore that. Yeah. So the other part that's new to mathematics, it's not new to the curriculum because it's in the same, it's in the phys ed curriculum is the social emotional learning skills. Now it, we have to say that it's supposed to be the social emotional learning skills and mathematical yes. processes. So do you see that being served by the kids doing their coding? Yeah, I honestly think that coding is actually probably one of the strongest applications where you can really see the impact of not only like direct instruction about like, how do we manage our own like social emotional skills, but also being able to see that in action with students. Because with coding, <laughs> with all things math, but I think especially with coding, you make a lot of mistakes and you have to be able to deal with those setbacks. There is a lot of opportunity for students to face challenges, to face barriers and have to meaningfully overcome them using not only only their like actual like mathematical and coding knowledge, but also using their own kind of social emotional knowledge as well. One of the sayings I always tell my students is there's a saying in the coding community of coding is 10% actually writing code and 90% going, why is my code not working and trying to figure it out? And so it's always a matter of not if you are going to make a mistake, but when. And it's all about really 
using the social emotional learning skills to think about how am I going to overcome that? Because if your response to my code isn't working is I'm going to throw my laptop across the room, that number one is not a positive expression of social emotional skills, but it doesn't ever help you solve the problem that you're having with your coding. And so I think it's a matter of really a great opportunity for students to learn and have opportunities to engage with the idea of when do I need to just power through something? When do I need to recognize that I actually need to ask for help from someone else? And how can I do that in a meaningful way? How do I deal with the frustration that comes up? Because, hey, it can be frustrating, especially when something you you really feel like you have not made a mistake and yet it's still not working. That can be extremely annoying even for adults. And I often even talk about the idea of even expert level coders go through this problem. It's not, oh, once you get good enough, you stop having this problem. It never goes away. It just, the problems become thornier because the things you're working on are more sophisticated. And even looking at things like mistakes are absolutely expected. Otherwise, like in the world of video games, for example, but also in the world of all software, that is why people literally hire and pay beta testers. They expect the idea that there's going to be mistakes and bugs along the way. Please and that's break it. it. Yeah, please yeah. break So, hey, so break, breaking it. is, yeah, and, and you can't possibly... Think of all the different ways you can break a program exactly. without sending it out to get broken by exactly. other people using it. Yeah. Here's something that, I could okay. I would like to jump for. Actually, it's gonna be if there is a chance, I would like to ask you to give some specific example about because actually what I'm feeling that it could be applied is what we are doing a breakdown in coding. We can apply this for science for math, but. I'm experiencing something like that, and I would like to hear from you. Have you ever experienced that when students dealing with the math problem, science problem, or whatever problem it is, alone and comparing with the doing coding with something or doing coding alone, how their resilience level is changing, how they tend to more give up or not to? So is there any difference really you can observe or you can share with us? Yeah, I think one of the biggest recommendations I always have for students, because I can certainly be like that as well. I think it's not so much which one do you tend to see more of. It's more knowing when this is a problem that you can solve on your own versus when it would actually be more beneficial for you to ask for help. Because I am absolutely the kind of person where I tend to get into a wheel spinning mode before I'm like a pause, maybe go ask someone for help. I think you've exhausted your own capabilities because sometimes it's that you actually don't have as full of a grasp of a skill or you didn't you didn't know you basically you don't know what you don't know sort of situation where sometimes there's you're facing a roadblock in terms of your knowledge that someone else can solve from you but on the other hand sometimes it's literally just a matter of you need a different set of eyes you need a different set of perspectives in order to see where you're going wrong and so I think for me it's a little bit more helping students understand how can you recognize within yourself that maybe you've exhausted your own capabilities and when is it time to reach out for help and whereas for other students sometimes they tend to give up a little bit too quickly on themselves where rather than push their own brain they're kind of like can you come solve this problem for me and so I think it's more recognizing in your students which sort of side do they tend to end up on and how can you push them out of it because always an example I use is I had built this game in scratch or I was trying to and I got I had made it pretty far. I was doing like everything that I'd normally done, but I was like creating a new kind of game. And then I got to a point and I was like, oh my God, like I actually can't progress from here. Like I have built this game 
wrong. I am not actually able to use the way I've structured the game in order to move on to the next stage. Like I've done this wrong. And I was like, oh my God, like I've spent like hours on this game. Like now I'm going to need to throw it out and start it all over. And I was so annoyed and I was, I wasn't even asking for help. This was a time where again, maybe I should have asked someone first. I was complaining to a colleague about how I'd spent all this time and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, what's the problem? And I told her, she's like, just do this one minor change and it solves your problem. And I was like, wait, how did I miss that? Like, how did I not see that was right there in front of me? Because my issue wasn't scratched. The whole thing is you don't see them right in front of you. Exactly. I wanted to use multiple sprites and she's, no, that's stupid. Just use multiple costumes. That's why that feature exists. And I was like, costumes feature. I forgot it was there. And so it's one of those things of that was a time where rather than ask for help, I just accepted my own perspective rather than reaching out and seeing what other perspectives were there. Because what nice thing about code is there's always more than one way to solve a problem. So do you think they're more comfortable while doing coding rather than doing other things and settings? I think so, yeah. Especially because a lot of times with code, students can can oftentimes solve the problem without necessarily having to have the like 100% kind of firm grasp of the exact concepts they use to solve that problem. They can like work together with another person to muddle their way through it essentially. And I think especially because in the world of coding, students tend to be on like fairly level ground. Absolutely. There's a little bit of variation there where sometimes you have some students who are really into coding and they do it at home. And there's other students where maybe they don't grasp it as quickly, but generally because they're all still relatively new to it. I think there's a little bit more of that kind of democratization of, I don't need to ask the kid who's really good at math. I can ask anybody for help and we're all on relatively even ground there. And that's something that I set up in my classrooms right away is that not only is it okay to ask for help, but I'm going to be asking for help a lot of the times yeah. too because even though i'm ostensibly the like more experienced as you say that second pair of eyes oh why didn't you think of this or did you think of trying this and a lot of the time that comes from people who don't have such a fixed idea of how things are supposed to go yeah. and they just go why didn't you try this and i go that wouldn't work and they go why not yeah and, go, you know, and right uh... it would work yeah <laughs> Yeah. And I just want to summarize here because we started with the just social emotional skills and we started mm-hmm. resilience and something. And now we are talking about communication and collaboration. And it's just where we are going through. It's just coming all together. Actually, it's like a package. It's not we aren't we don't need to focus on one thing. It's coming all together. The resilience yeah. make them the connect to go more. And they are really willing to communicate i think in this coding things more than the other things because this being in very same level or kind of everything new and excited maybe making this more willing to do that i also think too another benefit of coding is it also opens up the world of who can you ask for help and when can you ask for it? Because like, obviously students are very used to asking the teacher for help. They're sometimes a little bit more used to like asking a friend or like a classmate for help. But the really nice thing about coding, and that's even something I try to model is sometimes students ask me questions. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. Let's Google it basically. Because I'm like, I don't know. And that's the nice thing about coding is everybody, even like people who are adults and are expert level at it, they need help all the time too. And that's why we have help websites. That's why we have like resource documentation from like different coding languages and different websites because they know people are going to have those kinds of questions. And I also even think sometimes reaching out to the company can help too, where one time it was this really weird thing where even the, even make code arcade was like, Oh, like that's really, that's very random. Like we've never seen that happen. Like we'll have to take a look at it where my student's game was not 
working properly. And like five of us had looked at it and we were like, this game is correct and it should be working. Why is it not working? And it was basically this really weird thing that because MakeCode Arcade is a block-based coding language and obviously there's like another coding language behind it, like making those blocks. The name they had given their variable was interfering with the code like behind the scenes. Oh my gosh. They didn't like it. And that's why it wasn't working. And the website was like, and when I reached out to MakeCode Arcade, because we're like, this game should be working. Like we think there's something wrong. They were like, they took them like a day to get back and they were like, okay, we figured it out. It's the name of the kid's variable. Just change that. It should work because it's like interfering with what's oh happening behind gosh. the scenes. And it's like, I could have, you know, we could have never figured that out. And no. so I think broadening that idea of who can you ask for help and like, how can you ask for it? I think is also really beneficial for students to reach outside the walls of their classroom as well. Another part, and this is something that is perhaps harder for the teachers than the students, is that I can use other people's ideas, yeah. other people's work work yeah, and, and scratch this is easy because like you can use other people's work and it automatically cites them when you yeah. remix the code but you can but as long as you're giving credit it's okay mm -hmm. to use other people's code it's okay yeah. to use other people's ideas because uh, honestly there's no new ideas i'm going to go on to the on to question four here so i'm a teacher i'm coding i'm getting really good results the kids are loving it how the heck do i assess it yeah, cool. what, what am I assessing and how do I assess it? I think it's really challenging for a lot of teachers because I think especially because coding is like predominantly in the math curriculum and it's also in the science curriculum. Those tend to be areas where teachers I find lean a little bit more towards the idea of you are right or wrong. When we have a math test, either you did it right or you did it wrong. Like absolutely, maybe you can get partial marks along the way, but it's a little bit more, show me you can do it. Did you do it? Yes or no. And I think for coding, the saying I always use with teachers is the idea of it's the process, not the product. Because especially in kind of the elementary level where we tend to be using tools that, as you just previously stated, it's very easy actually to take other people's work and use it and come up with something that functions. You can often end up in situations where students have something that when you look at it, looks quite sophisticated and maybe even function in a very sophisticated way. But if you ask them to explain it, they have no clue. They have no clue how it works. They have no clue how they got there. And you can absolutely end up in that kind of situation. It's very similar. Just like the other day we were working on in my class in math unrelated, but we were working on comparing two numbers where either you're using the greater than or lesser than symbol. A student could, there's only two choices. So a student could reasonably use the correct symbol without ever having known how that concept actually works purely by guessing and muddling their way through it. And so that's another skill where it's going to assess where a student could just guess their way through and actually end up being successful. And so one of the things I really encourage teachers to think about is using a little bit more of that kind of conversational data in order to support them. We're actually setting students down to be like, you know, can you explain to me what this section of your code does? Or when they're having a problem, be like, okay, what have you tried so far? Demonstrate to me that you haven't just been sitting there, like you've actually been trying things. What have you tried? Because that's also going to demonstrate to you how they understood the concept you've talked about. Because and how they can that. think about. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I really find that having students explain sections of their code like verbally to you or even a lot of coding pretty much all of them actually now that I think about it have a comments feature where they could even within there if you don't want to have that kind of conversational like one-on-one -on -one piece you could have them like add in a comment of my section of code does this here's how I accomplish that also having students do doing like little challenges and that actually connects really well to the coding expectation of reading code and being able to essentially edit the code and explain how you would yes. have different changes would have an impact asking students okay 
if I made this change to your code, what would happen? Or even sometimes with students, like especially because with things like Scratch and Make Code Arcade, it's really easy to make copies of their program. Literally, yes. you could even do something like take their code away from them, you change it, give it back to them and be like, fix it. Or why is it not working anymore? What did yes. I do to it? What impact does yeah. that have? There's lots of different ways you can approach it. But I actually find having students in some way, shape or form, however that's going to look for you, because there's tons of different ways you could do it, explain why their code works yes. the way that they, it does how else they could do it, what certain changes would have, that is more likely to demonstrate to you that they've actually grasped the curriculum concepts than just looking at their completed project. Because especially too, you never know. They very easily could have gone online and just fully copied someone else's code and none of it's even their own. It's very difficult to tell. So yes, I really think is. having students actually having to yeah. demonstrate so, that verbally or in writing or whatever it might be, yeah, just, that's really where you get that assessment data. Yeah. From. So for the listeners out there, if you want to add comments to Scratch, what you do is you right click on the box on any particular block that you want to explain you can you right click choose comment and you get a, like a little yellow sticky icon that you can type in and the students can type in and explain why they chose the block or what to do if you're using python you can do the same thing in any line if you use the hashtag symbol as soon as as soon as python sees the hashtag symbol it knows that you're commenting and it just ignores all of that in the running of it so there it, like all code I, i'm I'm not sure how it works and make code or other. It's very similar. You right click and you press comment. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's very common for people who do this for a living to put comments in as they go. So if you're teaching them like a real life skill or a real, real work skill, if you're doing that as well. <laughs> yeah. Plus you get to see what they're thinking. So if you don't have the time for the conferences, have them annotate it and then have a look through that. Beza, you look, you're looking very happy, Beza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I'm happy and I'm really overlapping what you're saying about I'm thinking about my experience. It's all overlapping. And just about this assessing uh, situation, it's really hard. But what the ideas you're giving is totally applicable and in all grades, I think. So I'm so happy to hear that. This is why <laughs> I'm not jumping for anything. I'm just listening. It's so all very applicable, very, yeah. Yes accessible it, things yeah and i'm really while doing our it was assessment but it's very same what teacher doing in the classroom we did the same and observing taking the images taking the videos is so much different to taking their own comments on their uh, things because they're sometimes they have very different diverse a vision about their creation so we you can get a lot of things more than what we are seeing from uh, on this project or whatever yeah. we are doing and yeah. sometimes i think it's better to see also how they're writing down in off-screen mode as well so i'm also interested in that way yeah. they are more talking about video games but what else because not everyone is just focusing on on-screen modes and of course we are more targeting this closed area but let's consider that international platforms as well because in mm -hmm. some minds you are working internationally so what else you're advising so let's go a little off screen as well 
Yeah, I think really the same concepts apply there as well, where even doing things, like I said before, having students just explain it verbally or even just separately in writing, it absolutely does not need to be in the same program. You can even do things like, because that's actually something that very much like I have done with my students or like for my students more, but it's also like very much an online way of communication is even having them just do like a screen capture of their projects, basically doing a voiceover over it, explaining how it works. But even when we're doing things like unplugged coding activities, that is very much where you can have those conversations conversations with students about why did you make that choice? What would happen if you made that other choice? Having them explain it a little bit more, whatever format that might take, I really think enables both those things. Because I also think it's important to, to point out as well, going back to that idea I talked about of students can almost stumble into the correct or like a functional way of doing something accidentally. Sometimes you'll also find the opposite where students code in whatever format it might take actually doesn't really fully work. But oftentimes, if you actually talk to them about it, they know exactly why they know what they would have done to fix it had and most of the time it's like I had they had more time because obviously in a school setting, we are very much limited by the project needs to be done by this day because we're moving on to something else sort of situation. But you can find absolutely the opposite where a student's code maybe doesn't actually 100% function the way it was intended to. But when you talk to them, about it. There is so much knowledge for why that is and what kind of changes they would try that comes out that it demonstrates to you the students absolutely grasp the concepts. Just oftentimes they were trying to do something that was perhaps a little bit more ambitious than they had first thought about. And so I really think that's where those conversational pieces in whatever format they're taking, whether you're working on something on the computer or even an unplugged activity, that's really where the benefit for assessing student understanding comes from. Because oftentimes you actually don't get a full picture from just looking at the end product and figuring out does it work or does it not it doesn't always tell you as much as actually having that conversation with yeah. the students themselves or so, having them talk to each other as well so the un unplugged coding is something that i use as a speed bump to slow people down because a lot of the time especially in math class and sometimes in science class and it can be dangerous in science class you jump to trying to solve the problem right away yeah. rather than like slowing down and and understanding the problem and if so if you have to model it physically or you have to write it out in pseudocode yeah. i find that becomes like a speed bump it slows Absolutely. them down makes them think about it first yeah. and then their coding is more successful yeah even think about i always use like those kind of like larger examples of what do professional computer programmers do when they are working on a large scale project. They don't just right. dive right in and start trying to figure it out on their own. They make a plan beforehand because otherwise you're wasting time and resources and therefore money on something that had you just done a little bit more pre-planning, you would have been much more successful at. So especially I think in the science curriculum, I think in grades, minimum grade seven and eight, but I think also in grade six, there is like an explicit expectation for students to be using things like flowcharts and pseudocode in order to actually plan out their projects before they begin. And I absolutely think that's something that you can have students at any age do. Obviously, the level of sophistication is going to be and complexity is going to be different. Oh, absolutely. Um, but absolutely. Having students plan things out is another way for you to get another sense of do they actually know what they're doing? Does their plan actually make sense based off of what you've talked on, talked about? Do, you, do they understand what kind of concepts and skills actually provide certain outcomes based on what they're trying to do? Because the nice thing about doing, for example, like a video game project, video games are like, entirely conditionals because they're all about interactions. Like if this thing Correct. is touching this thing, do this. If this button is being pressed, do this. If a student has not included any conditional structures in the plan for the code, then clearly like they that's don't not, they didn't understand really it. Because like going otherwise, to work. Yeah, that's yeah. not going, that's literally not going to function. And so yes. clearly they didn't but, understand yeah. the concept. So what I'm finding is that this actually shows the students the value of the planning that they would not yeah. normally do 
do, especially if they've been in like a math textbook. I joke that you can open up a math textbook, pick out a problem, two numbers, you go back, you look at what the chapter title is, and then you do that operation to the two numbers yeah. and you're going to pretty <laughs> much be right most of the time. Yeah. So they're, they're conditioned and, and a lot of our teachers have been conditioned by the way they've been taught math. I, I know that some people are talking about coding being like a Trojan horse into teaching really good math skills and, you know, how to, or more just how to be a mathematician as opposed yeah. to a, like a math, I don't even know what you would call somebody who just does textbook stuff. Yeah. I think it's really one of those things which you were talking about where in order to create anything meaningful in any coding language, you are very much combining a variety of different skills in entirely novel contexts in order to try to achieve a certain outcome. Whereas oftentimes in regular math, which I'm putting in air quotes, it's a little bit more like we are focusing on this one very narrow skill. And the questions I'm asking you are obviously going to be about that skill because that's what we're practicing. In coding, it's very difficult to do that beyond like very beginner level kind of activities you might be doing in order to teach a specific concept. Once you actually get into more coding like projects, that are a little bit more like longer and more in depth. It's like you very much need to find different ways to combine your skills because it's never just like, oh, you just need to plug and play this one thing. It's very much like if you want this outcome to happen, there's five different skills that go into it. There's more than one step involved. And so it very much requires that flexibility and that kind of nuance from students that they don't otherwise always experience in math. I'm keeping one question at the end, maybe if you can yeah, yeah. close the wrap up. So yeah. yeah, it is more personal and your professional sure. things. Actually, I'm wondering because you're not a lone teacher, you're also content developer and you're doing more mm -hmm. curriculum designers. In that case, how they become overlap or contrast, what you're experiencing about this, how they cross, it's all positive or there are also some negative outcomes reflecting to your experiencing while teaching or while designing your content. Yeah, so I think very much to me, it's mostly a really like overall like positive overlap, primarily because like when you're looking at content or curriculum development, you're very much thinking about, or at least I'm thinking about to me, always the balance is how can I make this so that anybody can interact with it meaningfully, how anybody, regardless of their skill level, can get something worthwhile out of it and of value out of it, while also not entering a situation where I'm dumbing something down or oversimplifying it, because I think that's always the risk. And I think that's very much what most teachers are reflecting on in their everyday teaching as well, is how do I present the curriculum that I'm required to teach in a way that all the students are able to access it without losing the nuance and the depth of the curriculum. So to me, it's always thinking about that flex being like whether or not I've always been successful, that's another situation, but that's really always the question coming back to. And even when it relates to things like coding is how can we make it so that all students realize that anybody can learn to code, whether or not we all enjoy it, whether or not that's something that we all pursue as a lifetime passion or a career, that's a, that's irrelevant from my perspective. But rather it's about how do we communicate the kind of kind of main ideas of what coding is and how it works to students and help them engage with it in a way that they can see the power of it. Because I think that's something that I, I come back to frequently when I think about like, why is coding important? And I think a lot of times we get caught up in the idea of 
for careers and jobs. And while I always talk to my students about that, because it's absolutely true, you can make a lot of money. You can have a very fulfilling career doing something that's related to coding. But I always use myself as an example. I would actually be a terrible computer programmer professionally. I don't like doing <laughs> it. It doesn't come naturally to me. It is not something like I find personally enjoyable. What I find personally enjoyable about coding is teaching coding to elementary age students and teachers who are in a very similar boat to me, which is like why I became a teacher sort of situation. So I always use that example with students. So I would still, at the end of the day, choose the career that I chose, but I think it's still beneficial to learn about. Number one, because I think it's just an interesting way to stretch your brain because the way that I always say the way the computers think and again in air quotes because computers don't actually think yet but it's basically how do I force myself to work and operate in a way that is different from how my brain would naturally operate and I think that's a useful intellectual exercise but really to me it's always about focusing on and I think that's where connecting back to that like kind of curriculum or content development side the main messages I'm trying to get across where there is technology in every single part of our lives it's continuing to proliferate in our societies and it has a big effect on us, both positive and negative. And in order to understand, I think at least in order to fully understand how technology works, you actually need to understand coding because that is the kind of uh, skeleton behind it all. And I even think about, you know, what's been in the news recently about these kind of like new innovations in artificial intelligence where now, okay, artificial intelligence can create entirely new artworks. It can create writing that is unique and actually fairly sophisticated in some cases, just purely based off of different prompts. And that is something that is on the one hand, very interesting, but also like from an ethics perspective, has a really big impact on our lives and societies. What does it mean for academic integrity? If did you technically plagiarize if it's entirely original, but an artificial intelligence wrote it? What does it mean politically? If right now, in order to spread misinformation, basically a individual person needs to type it up and spread it. What happens if you can create of different pieces of misinformation and spread them very easily because artificial intelligence is there. And if you don't actually understand coding and how that's created, then you will never fully understand what kind of impact these things have on us. And so I think it's a much broader kind of understanding where is it important for students to learn how to code and understand the basics of it so they can do even basic things where, you know, for example, like for me, anytime I have to go into the back end of a website, okay, I have a relatively beginner's level understanding of like HTML and CSS, but I can at least figure out, okay, what section of the website am I looking at when I'm looking at the code? And that's still useful to me. So it's important to understand those skills. But I think to me, it's always how do we keep that larger message of what actually is coding? What impact does it have? And why is it relevant for us to understand it? Even if 10 years from now, we don't remember how to code in this specific language sort of idea. Yeah. So this is, this is why the work by Andrea de Sasa is so important about us mm-hmm. creating or us moving towards coding being, being becoming computational literacy yeah. and it becoming mm-hmm. something that we just, we understand just like we understand language and, and, and I know there's a lot of a lot of push to not call it coding and not co- and we want to be calling it computational modeling, computational thinking, and all of these things. But there's one good thing about calling it coding is we're really not teaching kids to be programmers. Yeah. So we're not teaching them to to grow up and work for Microsoft and create a better word. We're that's not the purpose of what we're doing. We're yeah. teaching them how to code so that they can use the power of a computer to be able to do the math, do the science, and all the other subjects too. Because you can do all the other subjects, which is yeah. why you should start in math and then branch out. Yeah. yeah exactly. And in that case, I'm finding this kind of interviews and resources so really helpful, mindful for teachers, for 
any educator professionals doing this thing because it's really hard to identify, identify from this to this because many just raising program developers more than just learning computational literacy. So thank you for all the suggestions. I asked this question more because more specifically for teachers, because I'm believing that all teachers kind of content developer in their classroom oh, as well. And yes. it could be <laughs> your suggestions, your ideas going to be so motivational for them. And if we are ending, maybe we like to ask one, maybe motto or some ending statement for teachers or motivate them. And would you like to say something just briefly? is in to our audiences yeah. give, give your pitch nicole sure yeah i think for me it <laughs> always comes down, yeah for me it always really comes back to that idea i think that's two parts where number one i think the most important thing for teachers to keep in mind is that your students are always watching you and when you don't believe in yourself that you can do coding. That's the message that you're sending to your students as well. So I always use like the comparison of would you ever look at your students and be like, oh, I'm not really good at math because I'm a girl. No, you would never want to share that message with them because you don't think it's a positive message. You generally want to try and keep it on the side of we can absolutely do this. And that's very much the case for teachers as well, where I think it's really coming back to that idea of it's okay to be nervous at first. It's normal. It's natural. You're being asked to do something that's new and you're being asked to do something that in many cases, which is disappointing from my perspective, but is the reality of you've often not been given a lot of training on. And so it's okay to feel uncertain. It's okay to feel nervous. But I think that coding is actually one of those places where that's where everybody starts. That's where everybody, no matter when they start learning, no matter how they start learning, everybody starts there and it's okay. I think it's more about realizing that, especially when it comes to coding, you are not alone. There are so many resources that sometimes you will need to seek out on your own, but there are things out there to support you and it's okay to rely on those. It's not cheating. It's not doing doing something in a half sort of half way. It's more, how can you leverage the resources that are already out there in order to support you and your students? And I think I always come back to that message of as well, of a lot of times in most classes, there are at least a couple of students who do have some experience in this, do have some expertise in it. And it's a really great leadership opportunity for them to be able to share that not only with you, but also with the rest of their classmates. And so I think really remembering that you are not on your own, even though it sometimes might feel like it and that you are very much capable and competent and you can do it and it doesn't have to be perfect and that's okay. Yeah. And I think really the second point would be going back to that previous conversation we were having of, I think a kind of bigger message for teachers would be to really reflect on why do you think it's important to teach coding? Because I think a lot of teachers are still in kind of the stage, I think, especially because we haven't in many cases been given a lot of training in this area of I am teaching coding because the Ontario math curriculum tells me that I have to. And there's no kind of larger scale philosophy behind it. But I would really think about most teachers I find have a larger philosophy for all the other subjects of when I'm teaching language, I'm not just teaching like the grade six curriculum in my case. I'm more thinking about what does it mean to create students who critically analyze media? What does it mean to create students who are strong communicators? What does it mean to create students who are lifelong learners? Same thing with math. We all as adults know there are certain concepts that like we do not remember. <laughs> so when they come up, we have to Google them. But rather it was about how can we have a strong kind of like numerical literacy to solve every problems for science. It's how can we understand the world around us in a better way for art? It's how can we express our creativity? We have these kind of like larger philosophical goals that we think about when students leave school and grade six is 40 years behind them. What do they actually leave? What do they actually remember? And I think it's important for teachers to reflect on what does that mean for 
coding? What for you does the most relevant component look like? For me, it's really about helping students understand technology better so they are able to critically analyze. I think especially now that technology is often being wielded in a way to drive misinformation and disinformation is more important than ever. But I think another flip side of that, and that might be the philosophy for some other teachers, is learning to code provides you with another set of tools to create amazing things and have a positive impact in the world. What does it mean to learn to code if one day you are someone who creates a website for an activist organization that helps create meaningful change? What does it mean if you learn how to code and eventually one day you are able to create an app for someone that helps drive something else? What does it mean to learn to code if maybe all you do one day is help another kid realize that's something that they're passionate about, but it was something that you were able to share with them. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's more about, I think, moving beyond that idea of I am teaching coding because I have to, or moving beyond the idea of I am teaching coding because of jobs. I think really thinking a little bit larger scale helps ground our own teaching and our own kind of lesson planning and unit development in something that is a little bit more meaningful and helps provide that additional context for us to be successful in the long term. So I think those are the two main ideas I always come back to. Okay. I'm definitely going to okay. try out coding Thank in you. my class now. <laughs> good. I'm glad. That's good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I hope my students don't listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> Although if there's a past student, KNS, uh, who was my, my, he was my scratch guru in grade when he was in grade seven. If he's listening to this, still talk about you, Kay, and still remember yeah. you. And he's the student that I would call to to help me out. Yeah. yeah. So it was always fun. Thank you so much, Nicole, for spending time with us one more time. Uh, I could I could talk forever with you. It's really fun to talk to you, and and I'm getting all sorts of new insights into why I would want to code in the classroom as well. No worries. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was really influential and. Yeah, so open minds. I think many gonna be motivated from your talk. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me again. It was wonderful to talk with you both, and thank you for such fantastic questions and for listening to what I have to share. But yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you happen to be in the Simcoe County District School Board, call Nicole. Yeah, (laughs) I'm always here. (laughs) She's here. You're lucky to have her. Coding in the Classroom is written and produced by Basil Caesar and Ian Brody for the OAME Gazette. The editor for the Gazette is Tim Sibald. Thank you for to Upbeat and Soundroll for the theme music. <laughs> <laughs>